0: What you're about to hear is a discussion about personal experience with cancer. We're not medical professionals, and at no point are we making recommendations for diagnosis, treatment, nor care. All opinions are highly personal, as each individual experiences mental and physical side effects of cancer and cancer treatments differently. We're only here to listen, discuss, and break the social taboo of cancer. You're in L.A., right? Yes, I'm in L.A. Well, thank you so much for joining us all the way from L.A., what time is it over there with y'all? 4 p.m. So we're three hours ahead of you. Okay. Okay. So it's not too, too bad. No, 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 no. It's totally fine. So yeah, thank you for joining us. And uh, it's Des and I here. And we've had a chance to just chat briefly prior to this, but we're really looking forward to talking. Um, so would you mind telling us um, how your journey with
1: uh, cancer started? Yes. So... 2018 is when I first started having symptoms, and I went to my primary care doctor a number of times, trying to figure out what was happening. And the main symptom was that during my period, I would have a lot more um, blood than usual. So, like, to when it got the worst, it was changing pads like every hour. And that was just super abnormal for my, for my period and what I was used to. And so I would keep going to the doctor and I would also go because I kept getting vaginal infections. So um, BV or yeast infections, and they would keep coming back. And every time I would, co- I would go to the doctor, she, she would say, oh, maybe it's stress. Are you stressed? Is your diet changing? Just things like that. And I finally decided like, okay, I'm just, I'm going to make an appointment for a physical because that way they just check everything holistically. And so I got a physical and that was in early 2019. So it was basically towards the later half of 2018 where I was experiencing all these symptoms, trying to figure it out. I was also in birth control a little bit, so we tried changing that, going off of birth control just to see if things would change, but nothing was changing. So then early 2019, I went to get a full physical, and so that's when they did blood work, and that's when they were able to see that my levels were extremely low, and she referred me to a hematologist, which is basically a doctor that just checks your blood, when you say that your levels were low,
0: um was it your white blood cells that were low or something else?
1: Yeah, it was my white blood cells and the red blood cells. So all of the and then just a bunch of uh, things that I didn't even know existed <laughs> was in basically, if you were to look at the lab report, there were a lot of things that were marked in red, the main mm-hmm. ones being red and white blood cells, red near like the one point something and those numbers are usually supposed to be higher than one for sure and so there was just a lot of levels that were marked in red including the red and white blood cells and those were the most indicative that something was happening and so she referred me to a hematologist and here in uh, the U.S. at least with my experience so far it's been really difficult to get appointments with specialists um quickly it's usually that they're really booked far like way far out and so I was really lucky and the person who I scheduled with on the phone for the hematologist told me like oh wow we never like this almost never happens you're able to get a, an appointment so quickly so I was able to get an appointment basically the week after I got my physical and it was because someone had canceled with a hematologist. So I was able to get that cancellation. And so a week after I went to the hematologist and that on its own was super scary because as I was walking to the the clinic, it had cancer literally written all over it. <laughs> like the name of the clinic had cancer in it. There were posters that had cancer in it. And I started freaking out. I started getting really anxious because I didn't know what I had. I know leading up to that appointment, I kept Googling things as a lot of us now do. And that leads you into terrible rabbit holes. So I had already been scared. Like, Oh, what if this is cancer? Um, and I know we all, like a lot of times on the internet, we joke about if you Google a symptom and write it, will tell you, oh, you have cancer, you're going to die. But for me, it was actually accurate, tragically so. Um, not the dying part, thankfully. And so I went in, I was super anxious. The doctor finally saw me and the main thing was doing blood work. So he did extensive blood work. So just, they have a lot more resources than at a regular primary care clinic. And whilst they were taking my blood, I had only had maybe like oatmeal in the morning. And so I passed out and they laid me down on the bed and that made me more anxious because I'm like, what's happening? I've never really passed out when they were taking blood. And then the doctor comes back with a very serious look on his face and he tells me, I'm going to send you to the hospital nearby, and you're going to be admitted. And they're going to do another test that they are better equipped at doing than I am here. They'll give you some numbing medicine so you won't feel as much. But if I try to do it here, it's going to be more painful. And so again, anxiety levels going way up, freaking out what's happening.
2: At that point, Like, did he say anything about what a diagnosis could be or it was still just like go do this test. Like, I can't really give you any information.
1: Yeah, it was just go do this test. It was keeping me very much in uncertainty. He didn't want to say anything about what it was or what he thought it may be. He just wanted me to go straight into the hospital and for them to do a more extensive test. And so at that moment, I... Had to call someone because I was like, I can't just go get admitted into a hospital by myself. Like, this is terrifying. I'm really anxious now. I ordered food because I didn't, I had just been waiting for hours and had to wait even more to be able to go to the hospital and they be ready for me. So I ordered food at that clinic where I was already at eight. And so my partner, who is usually the first person who I would call, that day he was doing an interview he was in an interview that was going to take about 3 hours long he was going to be done at 3 p.m. and i was still in i went to the clinic in the morning and so i didn't want to call him i didn't want to interrupt his process obviously and so i called my oldest sister and this was she lives on the other side of town um in la and There's always traffic. So it took her a while to get there. But thankfully, she got there and she was waiting for me in the clinic in the room. And then they finally gave us the green light. My brother in law also went. He's the one who drove. And so they finally gave us, okay, the green light to go to the hospital. And so we all went, all three of us together to the hospital. And I started breaking down. I started breaking down when my sister got there. And even more so in the car because it was sinking in like, What is happening? Like all of this is happening so fast. I just went to go get checked for something, and now I have to go get admitted into the hospital. And so I'm crying in the car, they're trying to comfort me. And we get to the hospital. I get admitted. And then they tell me, okay, we're going to do a what's called a bone marrow biopsy. And they tried they explained it to me. And the doctor was like, also, I just learned a lot about various bedside manners. (laughs) And that first doctor was very difficult because he kind of just went in on, that was basically the first time we're like, oh, we're thinking it may be leukemia. And then he started going into basically the description of what treatment would look like. Meanwhile, I'm still processing wait, leukemia, cancer, like what? And so we had to stop him um, to give me a chance to process what was happening. And by that time, my my partner had gone in there. Thankfully, it was basically just in time. I had gotten admitted and then he got out of his interview. And then I told him, oh, I'm in the hospital. And so he came rushing. He didn't even get to eat. And Obviously, he was scared because it's like, what the heck just happened? And he was there when they told me it was potentially leukemia slash cancer. And I started breaking down, crying hysterically. He held me. um, And when I finally calmed down, they came back and explained a little bit more. And so that's when they did the test. And the labs came back and they confirmed that it was leukemia. And they told me, okay, you're going to have to stay here for about a month because your blood levels are so low that you're very prone to infection. And if you get an infection, you can, this is like, you can die. This is very complicated at this point. You have no immune system essentially. And so they admitted me for a month and that's where I started chemo and they were monitoring me the whole time. I just feel like a lot
0: happened very quickly. Mm Mm-hmm. When you came to the hospital with your sister and your brother-in-law, did they make you wait in the hospital still or were they ready to process you right away?
1: When I got to the hospital, I still had to wait. There was a lot of waiting Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I had to wait for them to give me a lot of green lights for the next step. And so in all that time, there's just growing anxiety about what is happening.
0: Mm -hmm. And so when you did go in to see the doctor, is that when he just said, okay, we're going to do a bone marrow biopsy? Yeah. I
1: think, I think maybe the first time it was just nurses and they were doing paperwork related things. And we were kind of just like, okay, is anybody going to tell us what is happening? And so it was finally when the doctor came in after the nurses had done a bunch of paperwork related things, the doctor came in and that's when he was Explaining that it was going to be, that it was potentially leukemia and that we were going to do a test. Did
0: he explain what a bone
1: marrow biopsy would mean? Yes. They described it. It sounded terrifying, um, especially because it was just going to be local anesthesia. And so, bone marrow biopsy is basically they take this huge needle and they insert it to. Essentially, like the lower back, your lower the area in your lower back, and the goal is to get as deep in so that they can pull out bone marrow um, into their sample, along with blood and any other things that may be helpful for them. But the main thing is the bone marrow. And it's a very aggressive biopsy the there's a lot of force and strength involved and the patient faces down the doctor has this huge needle syringe type and they kind of have to drill past bone and so they numb the area locally but you can still feel the force and uh, the movement of them trying to Break through bone and and get in there, and so it's definitely a lot. There's there's a possibility to go to do that biopsy under full anesthesia, like general anesthesia where you're not conscious, but when they're just admitting patients quickly and they're trying to get a diagnosis quickly, they don't have time to do that, and so a lot of times the first biopsy may be especially for in a case like mine where my labs. We're showing that this is urgent. They will opt to just do a biopsy with local anesthesia.
0: How quickly after you were admitted did they do the biopsy?
1: They did it within maybe the first two three hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how did you? How did you feel throughout it? I I tried my best. My partner was great. He's he was my caretaker essentially for the entire time from day 1 and so he held my hand he helped me breathe through it and i just focused on him and focused on trying to stay calm through it all and and i was able to get through it fine but it was it was a lot of self soothing a lot of leaning on him to help myself stay calm And I was just, at this point, I mean, it took a long time. It took weeks for all of this to sink in and for me to able to process everything. At that point, everything was just a blur, like moving super fast.
2: Um, I am curious, like leading up when you were noticing your side effects and trying to get like diagnosed, um, did your partner know what was going on? Was he involved in like that process or... Was it kind of like a shock to him? I mean, obviously it's a shock to you and him, but was he kind of along for this journey already, I guess?
1: Yes, he was, uh, especially because we, we were already living together. And so he was very aware of all the symptoms that I was going through, that I was feeling. He was aware of all of the doctor's appointments I had already been to. And he knew I was going to this appointment as well. So thankfully he was in the loop leading up to it. And so it wasn't a complete surprise, I guess, but obviously none of us expected leukemia.
0: And you said that right after the biopsy, the doctor was able to tell you that it was leukemia. Were you still in the hospital while you were waiting for the results?
1: Yes, I was still in the hospital. I was in the same room where they first admitted me, and and it was actually maybe like a few hours later where they came in and told me to confirm that it was leukemia. And then they told me, however, we have to wait a few days to confirm which type of leukemia exactly. We have a hunch of which one it is, but we need to confirm and that those labs take a little bit longer. And so yeah, they told me it's leukemia. However, we need to confirm exactly which type, but we can already get you started with part of the treatment. And so that was kind of like the, the right-of-way next step. Mm-hmm.
0: Did they tell you a little bit about the different
1: types? Mm, not really. I think once they confirmed which type it was, they just gave me information about the, ex- mm-hmm. the specific type that I got. I know they did tell me that I got, quote-unquote, the good kind. And I know that's like a a running joke in the cancer community about doctors telling you, oh, but you got the good kind, which is, you know, you're lucky this is good. And we obviously joke about it because we don't think any cancer is a good kind. But it makes sense if, you know, for mine, I had, thankfully, a much larger chance of surviving than maybe for other types of leukemia and that statistic is very recent because only about 20 something years ago this leukemia that I got was basically deadly and it was like a death sentence like mm, there's no really good treatment for it but now in just around two decades that has changed and so they told me, that's something that they really emphasized, is this is, this is quote-unquote good leukemia. You have high chances because you came in early enough. And yes, you do have a lot of it in terms of like the spread, but it's going to be treatable and thankfully this chemo works for you the next step would have been, if that didn't work, they would have done a bone marrow transplant. Thankfully, that wasn't necessary. Mm
0: -hmm. So for you to stay for the next month, it was specifically in order to get chemo?
1: Yes, it was to get chemo, to get me started. They call it the induction phase. And so they kept me in the hospital because I was quote unquote neutropenic. I had neutropenia, which means that your immune system is very compromised and it is therefore unsafe for you to be out in the world because you can, anything that maybe cuts into your skin can therefore turn very serious. And so they wanted to keep me safe in the hospital while I started chemo and they also wanted to monitor how I would be reacting to chemo. And that first month is crucial because that's when Complications arise if they if they do arise, and they're able to better treat them if you're right there in the hospital. It's difficult to think
0: about what you had to be going through in that moment, knowing like that morning you went for a doctor's appointment, and you're not going back home for another month. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was did you get? I guess you weren't allowed to leave at all. So somebody probably brought you stuff. Like did you were you staying in the same hospital? what was the setup
1: like for that next month? Yes. So they, once they basically confirmed the type of cancer I had, they, that same day, they moved me into a different room, into a different section of the hospital that was specifically for similar patients as me. And My family, my partner, you know, went home at some point, brought me stuff. I don't know if he went home the same day. He may have just gone home the next day to get me some things. And just like basic stuff and things that I had asked for that would bring me some type of comfort. And throughout that whole time, people were bringing me things just so that it can feel a little bit of a home (laughs) and to help me just distract myself throughout the whole time. But yeah, I was in the same hospital, just a different room and a different part of the hospital.
2: How did you approach like telling people? Because I mean, there's so many things, especially if you're not going home, it's like your job. I don't know if you were working, but like you have to like sort out your job and any like responsibilities you have, I'd imagine. And then, Also, just, like, how did you approach telling friends and and family?
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's funny because I felt, you know, you're kind of forced to tell people at least your job or if you're in school. And that week I was about to turn, um, oh my gosh, I always blank out on how old I was. I was about to turn 27, I believe, or 26. There's a lot of like little details that I always forget, but it was gonna be my birthday that week, basically and had I had planned a and curated an art show featuring all women artists in the neighborhood where I grew up, and that was kind of like my way of celebrating my birthday and I had to notify all of the artists and the host of the venue to let them know that this was no longer going to happen and that I wanted to postpone it. I didn't want to cancel it all the way through, but that it wasn't going to happen that weekend anymore. And I told them because a lot of the people who were featured were friends or acquaintances. And so I told them briefly and I told the, the venue owner as well And then I told my, oh, there were people who, you know what? I'm just remembering. I actually don't know if I told them. No, I did. I told the artist because they had to know. And I told the venue host. But there are people who were going to attend who didn't know what was happening. I had, you know, been posting about this for a week or telling friends for like at least a week, even probably longer about this event that I was putting on. And so I I got a few messages from people who had shown up to the venue and they were asking like, "Oh, wait, what is happening? Why isn't why aren't you here? What's happening?" And so I told them I think it varied in terms of some people I just told, "Oh, I got sick. I'm in the hospital." And my closer friends, I told them exactly what was happening. In terms of work, I had to tell them pretty much immediately what was happening as well. And I feel like I surprisingly did really well with that part. Like the administrative quote-unquote stuff of dealing with cancer and like letting people know. I think it was helpful to just kind of like do something active that would help me just process So, with family, it was difficult. I cried every single time I told my family. um, I think that was probably the hardest.
2: That is really interesting that you were faced with this situation of like having to navigate telling people, like close people, but then people that weren't close because they were planning on going to this event. So, you like immediately had to do this like judgment of like, who, do, who is close enough to me that I actually tell what's going on? Because I know for me, in some situations, like I was very open, but I would also feel kind of self-conscious sometimes about it, like oversharing too much personal information, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. like making them feel uncomfortable. So it's, it's interesting to me that you kind of had to like literally figure that out right away. That must have been, um, but I'm happy you, you know, you felt like you dealt with it. All right. But yeah, I had a very similar
1: situation our
2: feelings around family. It was like, I told all like my friends first and left my family to the end.
1: (laughs) I told my family the same time. I told my fam, I did prioritize my family. It was just the hardest, Um, you know, because everyone else was kind of like through the phone. I didn't have to see them face to face, but for at least my parents and some of my siblings that were able to show up. Well, all of my siblings eventually eventually showed up in person. And it was always just difficult to see them and have them face what's happening along with me. And so that that was probably the hardest part. I remember my dad. So my mom, we have um, our birthdays basically like two days apart, and so she was out of town. She was with my one of my sisters in Vegas <laughs> celebrating her birthday, and. We had to call her. I didn't call her. My other sister called to t- to let them know that I was in the hospital. And so they came back immediately. But my dad was able to show up, I think, the the same day. And so when he showed up, you know, he's... I, I had seen him cry before, but not a lot. And I don't even know if he cried that day. He was just trying to stay super strong, I think for me. So when he came in and he's just like an older Mexican, you know, immigrant dad. And so it's hard for him to show emotions. And so he came in, he saw me in the hospital bed and <clears throat> I immediately started crying. Cause I was like, Oh my gosh, I love my dad. So he comes over and then he tells me in Spanish, like, cause I start breaking down he tells me, control yourself, controlate, controlate. And I started laughing because I was like, what? Why is this like the first thing? This is like, so you. And I knew he was actually telling himself because I know he was breaking down inside and he was really trying to keep it together for me. And I remember telling my partner and we were both like cracking up about it and just like, yeah, he was most likely telling that to himself and it brought me a little bit of like comedic relief (laughs) for my mom when she came over I think she came like maybe the next day she I started crying as soon as I saw her as well and she told me this is the time to bring out like that strong stubborn like feisty person that you are because I'm like the most outspoken and stubborn and quote-unquote feisty one from the family and I'm also the youngest so it makes sense and she is usually very soft and caring and so that was out of character for her but that was exactly what I needed at that moment and so I'm very grateful for those moments I'm very grateful that my family was able to show up for me and although it was like probably the hardest when it was around them it was it was also very comforting too to have them there.
0: Did you get to have them there throughout your treatment? Was there any restrictions? Because I guess this was prior to COVID. So were they lenient on letting you have
1: people in the space with you? They allowed people to visit for sure, which was great. And the only thing we had to be careful about was making sure that anybody that visited wasn't sick Mm. because my immune system was compromised And then we also asked everybody to wear masks. So Mm -hmm. we've been wearing masks since pre COVID because of this. And that was super helpful just to try to keep me safe. Since I was already starting treatment, I, you know, we didn't want to add anything else that would complicate it. But thankfully, you know, my, it's funny because my partner became very, he became basically like in charge of keeping the space clean, and so he would sanitize it often. He would sanitize the handles. He would make sure people were wearing masks. And at some point, one of the nurses that we ended up becoming friends with, she started calling him Mr. Fabuloso. I don't know if you're familiar with that brand, but it's basically like a like a cleaning a very popular cleaning brand, especially within the the Latino community. And so. That was kind of like his nickname at that point. But yeah, it was very much people can visit, but make sure you're not sick and make sure you sanitize your hands and you wear a mask.
0: So you had basically like a COVID officer prior to COVID even being a thing.
1: <laughs> I did. So once COVID hit, we were very much used to all of that at mm-hmm. that point. Um, I,
0: I'm curious to know a little bit about the treatment, like what, what the treatment was for that month.
1: So the treatment was basically a combination of pills that I had to take orally and basically in in something that was uh, distributed through an IV and over a period of like two hours every day, Monday through Friday, and the pills were every day as well, were every two weeks. And then you take a break of two weeks and then you take it again every two weeks. Same with the chemo through the IV. That was every day, Monday through Friday, for a month. So that whole month I got it. And then you get a month off and then you go back on. So it would alternate, but it was very much like a daily treatment One was just oral pills. The other one was you have to sit there and have the IV um, with the drip over like two, three hours.
0: When you left, so you were there for a month and then you got a month break. Did you have to come back in and stay in
1: the hospital for another month? So thankfully, once that month was over, my immunity was up again. I was at a good enough level to step outside once again. And so after that one month, I was basically going to be an what they call an outpatient, which means that you no longer have to be in the hospital once when you get your treatment, you just go into a specific clinic for the length of your treatment every day if that's for me at least that was my course it was every day and then you get to go home. So I was, I was able to go home after a month and I thankfully never had to be admitted into the hospital again after that.
0: How are you feeling throughout the chemo? Was there any side effects to the
1: medication? Yes. So the first month is the most crucial, like I mentioned, because that's when the most complicated side effects may come up and it's, it's, important to stop the treatment if it gets really serious in terms of at the hospital I got I know with the IV type chemo I I would get anxious, a lot of anxiety and sometimes I would get nauseated as well so nausea which is pretty common um I think with the pills, I would get, I'm trying to remember, oh, with the pills at some point during my chemo process, um, because it was a total of nine months of chemotherapy, my, the pressure in my head went up. It's kind of hard to explain, but basically there was too much fluid and The pressure in my head was increasing. And this was a side effect of one of the medications. And so I had to get what they call a spinal tap, which is basically a tiny needle they insert into your spine and they take out some fluid and they measure how, like, what the pressure is in your head. I don't know technically exactly how it works, but they were able to do that and see that, yes, it's elevated. It's above normal, but they were able to take out some of the fluid and therefore that brings it down and like stabilizes it a little bit more. But that was the side effect from one of the medications. And thankfully I had been monitoring, monitoring all my symptoms. And so I knew I think this is related to this exact medication and I had been, I had first caught it because it was impacting my vision. So I was getting a lot of headaches and my vision was kind of changing and becoming a little more blurry. And so I had seen a neuro ophthalmologist and they were able to see and kind of speculate what was happening. And that's why I got the spinal tap test and they confirmed. And so I advocated for myself with my hematologist and basically told him what was happening and asked him, if it'd be okay to basically take a break from that medication. By this point, it was more towards the end of my chemo, thankfully. And so I was able to take a break. And then I, my pressure went back to my brain pressure and head pressure went back to normal. And I asked him if I can just stop taking it. And he didn't want to let me, but eventually he agreed and That was like super helpful because it took away those symptoms. Aside from that, it was a lot of anxiety and nausea. With like the drip.
0: Were you given any sort of like mental health uh, or mental wellness tips or help while you were at the hospital?
1: Yes. It wasn't as helpful as... I maybe thought it would be, or desired at least. Um, but it wasn't even, it was kind of like they had someone who came in and did Reiki. They had people that came in with like essential oils. It was kind of like very basic things that weren't super, super, super helpful, like moving the needle, but it was still appreciated. And... I think the biggest thing, like like a mental health professional, that, that wasn't available at the hospital. Um, they would kind of just ask you if you wanted to speak to a social worker, but that was pretty much it.
0: Did you take them up on the social worker?
1: I did, but it wasn't super helpful to me. Because I was very much on top of a lot of stuff that the social worker was there to help with, which was more like logistical things, administrative things. And that was what I was I was kind of like doing on my own anyway. So they were there and they were helpful for any questions that I maybe had for clarification and paperwork that I needed to do. But that was pretty much it. I'm
2: curious, like, um, because you were so young, like mid twenties and your life is basically put on hold in like an instant and then you're just in the hospital and then continuing on with chemo for so long. How were you coping, I guess, mentally and emotionally with like that being in that place in your life and, and kind of being put on hold? Were you like able to see past it and like look to the future or were you very just kind of like wrapped up in the moment? I guess, yeah, I'm just wondering like where your head was at.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I I think I was in shock for about 2 weeks and numb. My default when I get overwhelmed is anger and numbness. And so I was very much numb. I wasn't that angry because I was just so confused. And it was just kind of like like I was floating that's kind of how i felt. and so i realized, you know what, like this is this is crazy. it's not really sinking in like i'm having a really hard time, especially because you have visitors and stuff, but people have work, people have jobs, people have other things that they have to tend to. so a lot of time during the day it was spent by myself in that hospital room trying to see what I can do with myself to keep me busy and sane. And so friends brought over coloring books, which at that at that time was helpful. It just gave me something to do. I had books that my fiance um, had brought. I had journals, which I did a lot. I journaled a lot. And that was probably the main thing that helped me. And then I also had like a little book of prayer, essentially, which was helpful. I had like little daily prayers. And I also watched a lot of TV. I tried to move around because my body would hurt a lot more if I just stayed in bed. So I tried to dance with music in in the room or take walks around the hospital. So it was just things like that. I think the main thing was basically realizing like, okay, I'm going to need a routine. So I I developed a little morning routine and I developed an evening routine. And then in between, I kind of just did different activities that kept me busy.
2: Was your partner working at the time still?
1: My partner, yeah. He had actually also gone through a layoff during that time. So it was, it was very difficult holistically. It was difficult for him trying to figure out what was happening with me. It was difficult for him professionally because that day that I had, that I got admitted into the hospital, that's when he had an interview for another job. So, yeah, it was just a lot going on.
2: So, did he get another job like that? Yeah, I can imagine that would be a lot for him to be like trying to start a new job and then dealing with everything.
1: Yes. Thankfully, he did. And the job that he got very much served. really good purpose during that time. It was a job that was more stable and relaxed in comparison to other jobs he had previously. And it was also remote. So he was able to be with me a lot more um, and help me out in that way. But then he also went through a layoff during that time. And so it was, it was still very complicated and he was very stressed out. And as a caretaker, he, it was very isolating for him as well because, you know, people are asking about me and how I'm doing and all of the attention goes to me, but then he's very much caring for me. And it's, it was more often than not, people would ask more about me and not really even ask how he's doing. And so I know he struggled a lot with that, and just kind of feeling very isolated in in a caretaker role while navigating professional struggles and figuring out: Am I gonna get a job? Like, what's gonna happen financially? I stopped working, and I was on disability, and so the money I was bringing in was decreased. And so the financial stress was like very much there along with like emotional and mental stress. So I know it was definitely like super taxing for him.
0: Do you know if he was able to find any coping mechanisms at that time or a support system?
1: I think he realized early on that he had to make sure he was okay in terms of like at least the basics and having food in his system and having time with his friends And even if his friends were necessarily asking him about him and, like, having those more deep conversations, it was still a good thing to do to, like, hang out with them and do, quote-unquote, like, normal young people things. So I know that was helpful, and I encouraged him to do that. And, yeah, I, I think at the minimum just trying to keep that balance of, okay, I'm going to try to take care of of myself plus get in that social time with other people and then obviously take care of Michelle. But I know he struggled with that too and struggled with guilt around doing things that weren't related to me or leaving me quote unquote alone or just things like that. I know he struggled with that, but we knew it was important for him to still like try to keep that balance and try to feed himself as much as possible, especially because during that time, my default, like I mentioned, like I tend to withdraw and push away. And so I was doing that to him, and a lot of it wasn't conscious, but that was very much a thing that made him feel even more isolated. And so I think. What he was craving the most was like understanding and being connected and being on the same page, especially for me, but also just other people. And that wasn't, he didn't get a lot of that, unfortunately. Once you were able to leave
0: the hospital, um, did you have to stop working? Because you said your treatment was nine months. So, was this uh, something you were dealing with for nine months in terms of not working?
1: So, while I was in the hospital, I didn't work. But then, once I got out, I attempted to work part time. And I developed an entire pitch (laughs) to my team to be able to work part time. And I think the biggest thing was fear of losing my job and so it wasn't like I wanted to work I didn't want to work but I was scared of losing my job and I was scared of financially what that would happen what that would mean in terms of like not working as much or also just potentially losing my job in reality it was like just a lot of fear but It didn't work out. I ended up working part time for a while. And that meant going to the clinic. You know, I was going to the clinic every day and I would take my laptop and I tried so hard to actually get stuff done, but it just would not happen. And then even when I would come back home and try to get work done, I didn't feel good. A side effect that I didn't mention that was a pretty big one was just extreme fatigue. And just not really being able to do much and even in terms of my my like physical activity extremely decreased I lost a lot of muscle thankfully I didn't lose a crazy amount of weight but uh, but the weight that I did lose was basically all of my muscle or a lot of my muscle and So I was just very fatigued all the time. And that was I basically decided to ask for full-time disability instead. And thankfully they gave it to me. And my team ended up being super, super supportive. They very much held me down during that time and sent me care packages and all these things. And so looking back, it was definitely an outsized fear. But I think it made sense too, you know, I think we all can relate to, to having a fear like that. And so, yeah, at the end of the day, I ended up taking full-time disability. And so I got a decreased paycheck, but I was able to focus on just getting through chemo.
0: You would have a whole month off where you wouldn't have to take any medication. Is that correct? And then you would take a month on where you would go every day and you're still taking the oral medication. And so this went on for nine months. Was there any period of time in there where you started to feel like a little bit, not necessarily better, but a little bit less bad? Or did it take like a little bit of time after you stopped chemo to actually return back to almost a full capacity?
1: The months off were definitely a relief, I think more mentally and emotionally than they were physically. Physically, it was a little bit better, but not that much better. But at least I was able to take a break of going into the clinic every day and waking up early and just being in that hospital space all the time. So mentally and emotionally, those breaks were were really good. Physically, it wasn't that much of a difference. And then once I finished chemo, I had still some months off before having to return to work. And that didn't feel like enough, unfortunately. It was obviously helpful and it's better than nothing, but it didn't feel like enough. And so when I went back to work, it was still kind of tough to like get back into the groove. And then the hand, the pandemic hit like quickly after. And so the pro, I guess, of that was that I was able to work from home but it was still very much exhausting i think the biggest exhaustion was just mentally and emotionally because i was still trying to process what had just happened the the last like year basically were you still
0: immunocompromised by the time you were done chemo no thankfully i wasn't okay so going yeah. into covid you weren't like at an added risk
1: I had an added risk only because of my medical history, but not because I was immunocompromised. So I basically, like I got a, a head start. I was offered a head start. Basically, I, I was qualified for getting the vaccine earlier because of my medical history, but not because I was immunocompromised.
0: How did the chemo affect your blood work? Um... What was the process of getting better like? Because they did say that it was a better
1: leukemia. So that chemo that I got was very targeted. Mm -hmm. Um, Thankfully, that chemo is very advanced in that it doesn't just wipe out everything in your body, which is what a lot of chemos do, and that's why they end up being very harsh on people. But the one that I had for this specific leukemia was a much more targeted type of medicine that was trying to, quote unquote, take out like the bad guys in my blood and stabilize the good ones so that they can continue to thrive and reproduce and get everything back to normal. And it, it worked, thankfully. It worked really well. My body. Accepted it very well for the most part, and I was able to hit remission within those those
0: nine months. Amazing. So, so does that mean that within those nine months, your blood work went back to normal? Correct. And with leukemia, is there um, what are the chances of you getting it again? So, for
1: mine, the one that I got which is acute prom. I realize I didn't even mention it, it's it's short. The short version is APL, and that's short for acute promulocytic, I always struggle saying the middle word, uh, leukemia. Mm-hmm. And so with APL, the chances of getting it again are low, thankfully. But yeah, like just the st- statistics around this leukemia, they look good. They look as if you're not going to get it again. Once you're cured, you're cured. Obviously, any cancer patient is statistically, like on paper, more at risk of getting other cancers. But thankfully, for my type and the chemo that I got, because a lot of times it's also just chemo. And the effects of that that maybe trigger other things that may go wrong, it was kind of like a more low-impact type of medicine and type of cancer, which is why I understand them calling it a good cancer because it's not a whole lot of damage in comparison to maybe other types of cancer or other types of chemotherapy.
0: That's amazing. I understand that most people have to worry about anything fertility-related prior to chemo, um, but does that change for your type of chemo?
1: Does it have effects on fertility as well? So the doctors, I remember when it was during the hospital stay, they basically had put me on a hormone that stops menstrual your menstrual cycle. And the goal was to stop any bleeding because I was at risk of bleeding out essentially because I didn't have an immune system and because I had this type of blood, blood cancer. And so they put me on that. And when they were basically trying to get me on that hormone at first, you know, I didn't understand the why I had just gotten off birth control And I was very much committed to not being on birth control because I didn't want to deal with birth control related side effects and what may come with that down the line. And so when they wanted to put me on that other hormone, I was very much uh, skeptical and didn't want to do it. And the doctor had to explain his reasoning to me. And I was having a hard time understanding and accepting it because I had spent so much time, you know, making the decision of not being on any type of hormones and birth control. And he ended up saying, well, if you don't take it, like you can, like you can die because you can bleed out. And so once he said that, I was like, all right, let's do it then.
0: I said quite the selling point.
1: Right. I was like, All right, you, you do have a point. Let's, let's do it then. But I bring that into the picture because with that conversation also came the conversation of fertility. And they, the doctors told me, we don't know exactly if this chemo affects fertility, but there may be a chance. We're going to do some research and we'll get back to you. And so at that point I was super anxious. I was very scared that it would affect my fertility and I started crying, I started breaking down cuz I was like I don't know if I don't know if I want to have children but I would like to have the option to if I want to. And so that was that was a lot to take in and then I was also kind of mad that they would tell me we don't know yet. We're going to go check, but there may be a chance. I was kind of like, why don't you just tell me when you know exactly like if it is going to affect me or not? Because now I'm in this anxious limbo of like, oh, maybe it will, maybe it won't. Finally, they came back maybe a day or two later and told me, thankfully, this chemo seems to not be um, impacting fertility so you should be okay.
0: I just have a quick question. So, Because they said, we're going to go do some research and come back. What do they mean by they did research in two days' time?
1: (laughs) They literally mean, we're going to go look this up. What I've learned a lot through this process of just going through cancer and being in hospital settings all the time, doctors do not know everything at all. And I think a lot of times we may expect them to because that's what we think is their job, but they don't. And so there's just a lot of nuances and a lot of details for every case that they're like, they're learning along the way as well. And it's not like they're doing brand new research. It's basically, we're going to read up on this and find out what research is out there that's stating fertility and this cancer type. Especially because they're treating different types of cancers within their departments, and they may not. And my cancer was just one type of cancer that is apparently more rare. Um, and so, yeah, they just don't have that information off the top of their head for for some of these things.
0: Did they ask you in any way? Since your cancer is rare, are they in any way tracking? You going forward? Like, are they going to do any sort of studies of your fertility down the line? Is en- does any of that exist?
1: That's a good question. I'm not sure. I haven't been asked mm-hmm. for any information. So I don't know how they would be tracking me or not. I know when I went to the neuro ophthalmologist for the increased brain pressure like head pressure she asked me if i wanted to if if i would consent to basically my case being part of some research that she was doing so that she she's able to draw those those connections and so that research can be out there and i was very much inf- like happy to to do that because that's super helpful because a lot of times a lot of the questions that i had there were maybe not clear answers for because there wasn't a lot of research yet there wasn't a lot of yeah a lot of cases to prove a lot of these questions to these to these things and so there was also a facebook community that i came across that was helpful for those types of things where it was just basically anecdotes of people and people sharing what they were going through or the things that they went through And that's how I was able to pinpoint for myself that the medicine that I was taking was was making the pressure in my head increase. And I took that to my hematologist and to my neuro ophthalmologist, which is crazy to think about. It's just like, it's just other people talking about this and were, and like, I'm going to take this to my doctor so that they can take it into consideration because they don't know as of now.
2: Yeah, that's a it's crazy how like important that can be and come into play. And like it's also just crazy to think about how much you have to be in control of your own experience because I think like I know for myself like before going into this before having my own cancer experience, like I had never really spent time in hospitals, I had never had any other health issues, and I think in my mind it was just like Okay, like they're all in control, like they're going to, you know, tell me what to do and they're going to figure everything out, but there's so much that you have to like do for yourself. Like it almost becomes like a like a full-time job in a way.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. That's been one of the toughest lessons to learn is how much you have to advocate for yourself. And I have I had a really hard time trusting doctors and nurses and everyone because I would catch on that, you know, they may not have these answers. They may not know. And I need to be aware of what's happening within my body. And so I could tell them and there's just a lot that you have to advocate for yourself from like the smallest things to like the biggest things in terms of, oh, the way that you're poking me right now with this needle to take blood is really painful. Let me tell you all the way to this medicine is messing with the pressure in my brain, in my head. I need to tell you. So it's just like a never ending. It's, it's like you said, it's like a full-time job. You have to really be present for yourself because obviously like, yes, they're professionals and they do this and their job is to take care of you, but you can't fully depend on them for all the little nuances that arise.
0: I'm curious if you remember any specific questions that you were looking for answers for that you weren't able to find any or they didn't know how to answer.
1: Um, One of the things that came up was me having GI-related symptoms. So... Like stomach pains and constipation. And they didn't have answers to those questions. They didn't know if it was chemo related or not. They, when I asked my hematologist, like, oh, what kind of diet do you recommend? And he was like, oh, you can eat anything. And so, even learning too, like, okay, doctors are not dieticians, they're not nutritionists, they're not the person to go to if you want advice on the type of foods you should be eating sometimes they know like if it's very specific and related to what you're going through but in terms of like general diet and nutrition they may not be the perfect person and so even stuff like that like having to learn what kind of gut changes are happening there's not much out there that is telling me that this may be related or not. So I just kind of have to figure things out on my own or looking up questions or asking questions within this Facebook community, stuff like that. Or, Oh, there was one too. My, I think it was like skin stuff that was happening. I don't remember exactly what, but I remember, Oh, I do remember it was a lot of dry. Like my lips were super dry, for example, at first. And the doctors never told me that that would happen. (laughs) And I kind of found that out through a Facebook community and they advised, oh, take this product or this product and that should help or pains and aches. The doctors maybe didn't have information on that, but the Facebook community did. So it's like little things like that, maybe like side effect related that, They didn't have that much information about, and I think maybe it's because of the type of chemo and the type of cancer that there just wasn't enough information out yet, but I mean, I'm not sure how it is with other cancer patients.
0: I get what you're saying in terms of like, it's a cancer that maybe they don't have a lot of research on, but if there is even one Facebook community that exists with people being able to answer these questions, it's pretty interesting that at the very least you're not directed there. Mm-hmm. I guess there's probably a lot of risk involved with trying to get third-party information, but there seems to be a link that's a little bit broken, especially if like you aren't participating in any sort of research study anything cuz you're open to it but no one's asked you but yet you do have the rare type of cancer so how are they finding out then Yeah this information is that even being actively worked on Yeah Did they in any way did you get genetically tested at all did you try to find out how you got cancer
1: They basically said they don't know they said we don't know how this happens we just know it's a mutation but we don't know, we don't know the causes. And when I think about it, it's, I just think about environment. I think about how you grew up, where you grew up, things like that, that we always talk about that may impact your risk of developing any type of disease. In terms of like the doctors saying anything, they didn't. They're like, "Oh, we don't, we don't really know how this happens. We just know it's a mutation, and that's it." I think they did say it's not genetic. That's about it.
0: Did they say it's not genetic because leukemia is not genetic, or do they
1: test you? I think because my leukemia wasn't genetic, I don't think they tested me. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. I realized we didn't ask. Did your period come back? normal like is it back to kind of how it was prior to you going through this
1: so yeah my period my period came back normal i guess it's funny cuz actually right now i i'm trying to remember i started having irregular bleeding which means for me bleeding outside of my period and that started happening a couple of years ago i'm trying to remember if it started before answer or after it may have been after. And they finally, you know, they told me to come back and get further testing. If it kept happening, it was happening on and off for a while now, but then recently it started happening more. And so, and just more noticeably and more blood And so I went in and I got referred to a specialist and they did, I haven't seen the specialist yet, but I had to get a pelvic ultrasound and they found a few cysts on my right side and a potential pull-up, but they don't know yet. And so I got referred to a specialist and now I have to get basically further examination and I also had to recently get an endoscopy and colonoscopy and for GI related symptoms. So I it's seemingly back to normal, but there's always kind of been like little things here and there post chemo and post-cancer that kind of seem to be a little off. And I'm trying to get those sorted out, figure them out, what's happening, how to treat it.
2: I think it's so interesting that like the way that you were tipped off in the beginning was through your period because I feel like period changes can be like so easily dismissed cuz our you know our bodies are weird and like things are always like so many things can influence your period so that's just wild to me that like it was that
1: Exactly and it was dismissed for a long time and it was because I went to go get that physical done that finally they were like, Oh, well there's very clear evidence that there's something more that's wrong and it's not just hormones or stress or whatever it is. So yeah, I'm very grateful for my period and just like the reproductive health and just my reproductive part of me. That was, that was kind of like my alarm in my case and I'm thankful that I was persistent as well, even though it took a while.
2: Taking it back to the fertility um, piece for a second, I'm curious if you and your partner had like had the conversation about kids before this happened, or like did this lead you to have to have that conversation, or like how was he involved in that
1: process? He he was basically like, we'll figure it out. whatever it is like we'll figure it out and I really appreciated that because he was very understanding of whatever fears I was having and he we're both kind of like leaning towards wanting kids we've always kind of been back and forth but we're both from very family-oriented backgrounds so deep inside we kind of always knew like it would be nice for us to have children and so I know he he maybe was feeling like sad about that potentially not being able to happen even now when I got um seen for irregular bleeding that conversation came up and I was actually like I had a panic attack in relation to it because I was like I think I, I really do want to have children. You know, it's been a few years now that have passed since the first fertility related conversation. And I think I know for sure now that I do want to have children. And he, he does too, but we're both kind of the same page about like, we'll just figure it out. Like if we can't, we can't, and that's going to be okay. It's, it's going to be sad and we're going to have to get through that, but it's not going to be the end of the world. So that's helpful to be on the same page about and not feel like it's going to be super existential and relationship shattering. If that were to be the case,
2: I guess like with your relationship with your partner, um, you talked about kind of taking on those different roles of, of him being your caregiver and you kind of withdrawing after, um, your treatment and when you were moving into like recovery, did you find that your relationship had to shift again or did you guys have to kind of like reconnect? I guess what was that process like?
1: Oh, it's been a journey. (laughs) It's definitely been a journey. Um, before I got diagnosed, we were having some difficulties, like relationship-related, communication-related difficulties that we were navigating. And then I got diagnosed, and it kind of felt like all of that was on pause. And I think he very much felt like I was still trying to address some of the things that we had been addressing and trying to be more active in the relationship, but it was really hard. And I know he felt like, and I think he made peace with, okay, these needs that I may have are probably not going to be met right now because she's busy trying to stay alive. And so I know that was difficult for him. Like we for sure still had fights during cancer and that was super hard. I know he feels like, okay, maybe I could have been softer with you at that time but he was very much struggling as well and when would he, he there was one time where maybe he spoke with his friends and they were very much like they were not super understanding of his well-being being like in need and they were kind of just like I mean she's sick like it is what it is type of thing so I know it was definitely a struggle because it was it was very much I am the one that's in need right now and I can't really be a good partner right now. I'm really struggling with that. And then post-cancer, it was definitely very much like a, a healing journey, a reconciliation of okay, this is, you know, this is how I went down. There, there was these moments where I knew that's how I basically learned that he really wanted me to lean in more versus just like push him away. And there was things that I would try to force, for example, like intimacy and having, well, even not intimacy, because we later discussed that intimacy doesn't just have to be sex in like The way that we imagine. And so he wanted intimacy. And I felt guilty because I just, I thought, you know, I was just thinking of intimacy as sex. And I was just feeling very self conscious and very guilty for not being able to really engage in that way because the chemo was impacting me. Everything was dry. Libido was way down. I just did not have the energy nor the desire to. And there were a few times where I like basically forced it because it ended up not, forced it in the sense that I invited him to engage with me and we tried, but then it didn't work out because, and we would have to stop in the middle of it because it was too painful or it was just like not working. It was too dry. And he would get upset, not because we had to stop and because we weren't having sex, but he was more so upset that, you know, he wanted me to be honest with him and to just like tell him what I needed and my capacity. And for us to find different ways of being intimate, which can be a lot of other things. But I was so stuck on trying to, I was so stuck on my own like guilt and like what I was struggling with that I wasn't seeing, that there was like more to it. So those were some of the things that we had conversations about after, like once everything was done and, you know, just kind of like healing together through that, um, apologies like for each other and appreciation for each other. So to this day, I mean, it's still, a thing that comes up but not in a bad way more so just like we're trying to integrate it as part of our relationship story would you be comfortable sharing
0: um things that you did find as like a good alternative for
1: intimacy yeah so even just kind of like holding each other actively and being very present was one way um, you know if there couldn't be vaginal penetration there can be I could like give him a hand job (laughs) stuff like that that's just like it's still very much us connecting maybe not in like the way that we usually do but it's still connection and yeah I think even just like being very trying to be very present trying to um Seduce him, seduce one another, and like flirt. Like, those are intimate. That's those are different ways of being intimate that we do now a lot. I think at that time, I actually didn't explore much of that because I was caught up in like my own ideas of what it had to be. But once we've talked about it way later, and now it's just when we come across periods where maybe I can't engage for whatever reason, or even during our during like every month where we have our period um where I have my period I I practice those other forms of intimacy with him and it's super super helpful so it's like exploring like oral sex if you can if like your body allows you to and like you feel like you can or hand jobs or just like I mean that's very much uh that's what works for us because it's just like a that's the type of relationship we have in terms of he's male, I'm female. Like those are the kinds of things that we engage with. But for any couple, I feel like it can be it can be anything. And I think as long as you're very much like present with one another and intentional about being intimate, it can be it can be whatever you you choose it to be.
2: This is great relationship advice for anyone, I think. <laughs> um, and now you're engaged, right?
1: Yes. Woo! Yes. We, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes. We're engaged. We got engaged last June and I can't believe it's already about to be a year, but yeah, we're getting married this August. Wow. So we're in the middle of wedding planning and you know, we still struggle. like this is, it's, I mean, it's a forever thing. That's something that I've learned is it's not like um, I tend to, my default is tend to, I tend to be very linear and just like, okay, I'm completely ready and healed. And like, that's not going to be the case ever. And in the time of a relationship or just a lifetime, we're going to come across so many different things and so many other different challenges, a lot of happy moments too, and a lot of ups and downs. And I think I've had to learn that that's okay. And that the point is to commit to just like, we're going to do this together and we're going to figure it out. And cancer is just one thing that really showed us like, okay, if we were able to get through this and we were early in our relationship, like we can, it's basically a reminder that we can, we can get through hard things as long as we just lean into it and lean into each other. And so taking that lesson on and knowing that you know, whatever cancer PTSD I have or that he has that he's still carrying, we don't have to be completely over it by the time we say yes to each other at the altar. And it's just it's just gonna be a whole process.
2: It's a lifelong roller coaster.
1: <laughs> hmm exactly.
2: Um I did want to ask, this is a, going in a little bit of a different direction, but I know one of the big questions that Eva and I had, because we are in Canada, was just around like the financial, um, the financial burden, I guess, or, or, or situation um, that you had to deal with. Because in Canada, um, we have public health care, so most of it is covered. Like I, um, even if I didn't have a job, like most of my healthcare would have been covered. Um, and I know it's different in the U S so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your experience with that. Cause I just always think about people in the States and I'm like, I literally can't imagine having to deal with like that financial burden with a private system.
0: And we're also a little bit unclear of what a private system really looks like Yeah, because
1: we're here. So we were just curious if you could shed some light on that. So yeah, that's a great question. And thankfully, while I was, while I when I got diagnosed and my chemo was um, covered by my insurance. And it's basically because the job that I was at, I had really, really good health insurance with my job. And so everything except for, The monthly appointments with my hematologist, just kind of like clinic visits, I had to pay a copay every time I went in, which was about twenty five dollars. But in terms of the actual treatment and like all that medicine, which was thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, that was completely covered by my insurance, which was a huge blessing because i I was I did not have any health, any like medical related cancer, at least related debt at the end of it, which was a huge thing because you hear about that all the time here in the U S but it was a lot of luck of just being in the right workplace with the right health insurance at that time. Now I have a different health insurance because I transitioned out of that job into school. I'm doing a PhD. And so I have the very basic student health insurance that they give you at the university. And so it's very different. It's, it's a lot more out of pocket, especially for appointments with specialists and exams. Like I mentioned before, I had to get a pelvic ultrasound. I also had to get an examination for my heart um, this past year or last year. And then I had to get an endoscopy and colonoscopy. All those procedures are more costly with this insurance because it's very basic health insurance. It's covering a population that's relatively supposed to be healthy, which is like young students. And so that's been difficult. And I've had to basically apply for a lot of emergency funding via my school. And thankfully, I'm at a private university that has a lot of money. So all you have to do is know how to work the system and learn how to find that money. And what helps me is that I used to be a student advisor. I used to be a college student advisor. So I'm more familiar with just being able to advocate for yourself as a student and then also knowing how to advocate myself for myself as a patient, I just bring those two together and I'm able to find different sources of money, but it's so exhausting. it's It's like another job. And I ended up just recently uh, requesting a health leave this semester because I was navigating all these additional health appointments that were just really stressful to navigate. In addition to doing school. And my mental health has really been suffering as well. And so I'm taking this health leave and going to focus on all these other things. And thankfully, with the health leave, I still get access to health insurance and I still get access to the stipend that I was getting as a student. But all this to say that it's very much a complicated system that has a lot of moving pieces. And you kind of just have to learn how to navigate it and speak up for yourself. And it's really hard, especially if you're a patient in the middle of treatment. Thankfully for me, like I said, my stuff was covered, but I know and have heard stories of other cancer patients where it's just really, really difficult because they have to do all this advocating for themselves while they're going through chemotherapy. And that's really difficult. Did
0: you end up being part of any communities with young people or anybody that's going through cancer outside of that online Facebook community? Was there other online communities or something more in person that you have found to be a part of, specifically to share this type of knowledge of like how to navigate insurance and how to navigate mental health and side effects
1: and things like that? Unfortunately, not. And I always craved it. I. And I think I craved it a lot of the time. I didn't crave it consciously. It was more so feeling very lonely and very isolated and recognizing that I was a lot of times the only young person in, in my appointments getting my chemo. And unfortunately, I was unable to find like in-person communities where I could just have these conversations with, or even just like vent, or even just like be in each other's presence, knowing that we're going through similar things. And part of it was because I was also just so exhausted all the time that I didn't even have the capacity or energy to look for those communities. And if I did hear of anything, maybe like within the hospital, I was too tired to, to like get myself to go. And so that was really difficult. I think now even now I'm like interested in just connecting with other young people who have gone through cancer and other like young cancer survivors cuz that's going to be helpful for me and it's always helpful for me to talk to other people who have gone through it cuz there's just like an understanding. But during I yeah I I wasn't able to find or I wasn't able to participate in 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 in-person communities like that. Um, What was the name of the Facebook group that you found? If you don't mind sharing. So the Facebook group was um, specific to the type of leukemia I had. And I actually, it's funny because I'm trying to remember how I even came across it, but I know one of the artists who was going to be featured in my art show she went through leukemia she went through the exact same one and so she's the one who shared with me that Facebook group and then she also shared with me so it's it's I free, I can like look it up but it's just a Facebook group that has acute sit, citic <laughs> leukemia in the name and she also shared with me um, the cancer patient Instagram, which I don't know if you are familiar with, but that's like a pretty big online community. And it's just basically memes, like coping through cancer in meme form. And so there's a lot of humor in it. And that was super helpful during that time as well.
2: I did come acro- across that Instagram account actually.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, it was like a little bit of light <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: in a heavy situation.
1: Yeah.
0: Are you currently on any um, medication
1: for the treatment, or are you completely finished your treatment? Thankfully, I am not on any medication. I'm completely done with it. I have been in remission for four years now, and I still go get checked every four months. At first, it was every month, and then every two months, then every three, and now it's every four, and. By the end of 2023, I should be like officially in the clear, I guess. Mm -hmm. As in, I was trying to remember the word cured. (laughs) I should be officially cured from this cancer. Um, And thankfully, yeah, I don't have to take any medications for it.
0: Is the monthly or the now every four months, is it just a blood work test that they do? Yes, it's a
1: very extensive blood work test. Mm. They just take a handful of tubes of blood and then they run it in their lab and they're able to to see it's just a more complex blood test than you would get at like a primary care cl- care clinic. But thankfully that's it. Before when I was going through chemo how they would check was blood work very often, but they just to check progress. But I also had two more bone marrow biopsies in order to check the actual bone marrow and how that was healing. So thankfully, those ended in 2019. I haven't had any other bone marrow biopsies.
2: I don't think I asked you this yet, but do, where do you stand mentally on like, um, I guess you do have like statistically a low chance of recurrence, which is amazing. Um, But I guess, do you think about, do you worry about it coming back or do you feel like you've just kind of are ready to move on?
1: I definitely, I don't worry about this cancer coming back, but I worry about other stuff. Um, I'm just, I definitely developed a higher level of anxiety in relation to health, period, and in relation to death. I Google way too much and I'm trying to bring that down because that's very much impacting my mental health in terms of just like, oh, there's like a new, like something different that I noticed in my skin or whatever, like, new symptom. I'll go into like a rabbit hole of trying to figure out what it is, and that has been very anxiety-inducing. So I'm trying to learn how to basically just be more calm and not super anxious when new things come up. So I'm very much in the process of trying to integrate my cancer experience into my life, and I know I'm always going to have some type of anxiety around health, but learning how to cope better with it. But it's definitely, I think that's been probably my biggest challenge is the mental health aspect of it. I've had, since I got cancer, diagnosed with cancer during my birthday, a lot of times the time around my birthday is very difficult for me. And there's just like triggers And PTSD around it. And every time I go to a doctor's appointment, there's anxiety around that. When I get new procedures done, there's always a lot of anxiety around that. And I've had multiple panic attacks, just breakdowns. So I think the mental health aspect is probably like the largest, the most challenging part now. And it's around fear of just getting sick again or having another near death experience or becoming a burden again. You know, that's in my head. That's what I'm thinking like, oh no, I don't want to be a burden to my partner again. I don't want him to have to take care of me again. Those are like the thoughts that come into my head that I have to like cope with. And it's all in relation to just fear of of getting, of something like, like cancer again.
2: Do you have, um, it just made me think of, this is like not the same thing, but just the weird things that your brain does when you're like dealing with anxiety. I remember when I got diagnosed, like I've always been a very, um, unafraid driver. I like, like driving, and then all of a sudden, like when I got diagnosed, I was super anxious driving, which was so weird because I had never experienced that before. And it was even hard for me to connect that like maybe my diagnosis is like what is causing this anxiety. Like it was so strange. Um, but do you have ways of of coping with this anxiety that you're experiencing?
1: Yes, I'm learning to I'm learning to do that. I'm learning to cope with it. A lot of it is just at least immediately, it's just a lot of self-soothing. So like, okay, it's okay. It's understandable why you're anxious. It's understandable why you're afraid, but you need to calm down, focus on my breathing. When I have panic attacks in terms of just like uncontrollable crying at doctor's appointments, I've kind of just... I'm learning to just let that happen because I realize it's kind of just something that I have to let out. And in the process, I'm trying to calm myself and breathe and all that. But a lot of times it feels like I can't control it. And I just kind of have to go through it. So trying to normalize these things within myself and being like, this is, this is normal in the sense that it makes sense. Like It makes sense that you're going through this and you're feeling these things and you don't have to completely freak out about it Um, as in like, oh, there's something wrong with me because I keep freaking out. Like, no, it makes sense. So those are just kind of like the conversations I have with myself. My partner is super helpful as well and just like helping me stay calm or helping me bring me down, having conversations with him. Recently it's helping to just have conversations with people in general and like be honest with them about how I'm doing. Like if they ask me how I'm doing, I'm starting to be a lot more honest about, you know what I'm struggling with this, but I'm trying to find ways of how to navigate this. Even taking a health leave from school was like a huge decision that is in, is basically in order to help me cope with all these mental health um, difficulties that are arising now. So yeah, there's just, there's a lot of things. Also something random that I just picked up again is like coloring in a coloring book, (laughs) little things like that, that are just helpful to get nervous energy out.
2: And also like keeping you present. I think Mm -hmm. That was one thing that I started doing too, actually is like, I hadn't like, I've always worked in a creative field and been a creative person, but I hadn't like actually done drawings or like you know picked up like a pencil in my hand like physically forever and then when i got diagnosed like i wasn't working so i i kind of made that a habit of just starting to like draw and i would have like t- big chunks of time of just drawing like alone and those were some of like i think back to those times as like actually happy memories during Um, this it was almost like a gift that I was given the time to be able to do that and it totally just worked as a method of like keeping me present and not spiraling
1: exactly yeah that's a really good way of putting it keeping you present and not spiraling because that's most of the time (laughs) like what we're trying to do
0: yeah exactly Is there anything else you want to maybe chat about or any sort of takeaways you want to discuss? Um, You've answered all of our questions and it's been honestly such an incredible conversation and I really appreciate you sharing all of that with us. Uh, But I also want to give you some room to, I don't know if you maybe even have questions for Des or things that you just want to share. Yeah, thank you.
1: I think... Just some of the biggest lessons, I guess, that I've learned is to... I know, Des, I know you spoke about wanting to... or being basically feeling hesitant about sharing your diagnosis or just feeling bad about making them feel bad, you know, those types of feelings. And I think... Those are very understandable feelings. But I think what ends up serving us best is like just being honest about what's happening, at least with the people who we care about and we love. It's just being honest about what's happening, about what we may need, about what our capacity is, asking for help and drawing boundaries. And these are all things that you learn along the way. Like, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be, you're going to mess up a lot. You're going to feel guilt and anger and all these things, but it's all part of the process. And at the end of the day, like, what helps the most, at least what has helped me, and just like as humans, you often hear this, and we just know that we depend on human connection and just being able to connect with other people. And so I think that's something that I would even tell I would tell, you know, anybody who's currently going through chemo and going through cancer or even post cuz it, you know, it doesn't end just once you hit remission. And I would tell the person like my younger self who was going through it was just to Lean into my community and to not push everyone away because it's very easy to want to do that and to not want to be a burden to people and to just feel like nobody understands you and like you have to do this alone, but that's not necessary and it's going to make everything harder. So, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing just like leaning into your community, whether that's your family, your blood family, or your chosen family, or your friends, your whoever is around you. That topic of understanding
0: how to navigate asking for help, accepting help, and also how to deal with the people that are helping you and the burden that they carry and the help that they might need, that is such a common thread throughout all of our conversations. Um, and it's something that we've really begun to discuss, like how can it be addressed? Like even the notion of just creating a community around people who are, you know, the support for people going through cancer. And, you know, ironically you end up being the support for your support system as well. And it ends up being this like huge pool of people that are kind of like all mean well and are fumbling around. Um, so it's just, it's such a,
1: it's such a large through line and I'm really glad you touched on that. Yeah. Fumbling around is such a good word. I think even just in general in life, we're all just kind of fumbling around trying to figure it out, and I think yeah, remembering that is helpful when you know we get angry at our family members for <laughs> maybe not showing up the way we'd want them to, but reminding ourselves that we're just all figuring it out. Yes, and I think that's
0: a good note to to leave it on. We're all just figuring it out, and we all need a little bit more time and patience and kindness with both ourselves and the people around us who mostly do mean well. Exactly. Well, thank you so much again for chatting with us. Um, It's been really nice to speak to somebody that's a little bit further away as well. Um, But that commonality of experience is very much still present. So it's been a really, really great conversation.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate the space and you all and your questions and this is super helpful just as someone still processing, you know, and so I'm very really, I'm very grateful for the space and I'm excited to to hear and listen to all the other stories that you all have gathered.